You are listening to the Krika Lecture Series podcast, produced by the Center for Russia, East Europe, and Central Asia at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. This and other Krika podcasts are available on SoundCloud and iTunes. For more information about Krika's lecture series and public events, visit our website at krika.wisc.edu. sitting here in beautiful Madison and hearing um, of uh, the atrocities uh, and uh, feeling so helpless and donated money to different causes and uh, to different organizations, uh, um, but just had a really strong feeling that I wanted to be able to help in some way. And um, my Russian has really attrited since I <laughs> finished my PhD, but it uh, uh, it was still uh, at a level where I could be useful, uh, and so followed Anna. Um, we were supposed to overlap for a week, but blah, blah, didn't, um, uh, just for a day, I think, in Krakow. And so I followed uh, Anna uh, to serve as a volunteer at the Refugee Center, doing interpretation, uh, as well as just a lot of direct refugee support in the center itself, which comprised of um, a full range of types of support that people coming to the center needed, like at that moment. Um, one of the things I didn't really, I didn't really know what to expect, but I guess one of the things I hadn't really thought through is how uh, um, for uh, the refugees who are coming through the center, the the needs were very much of the moment. You know, I need to. Um, I need a pillow and a blanket and somewhere to sleep for the night. Um, I need to figure out where I'm gonna go tomorrow. Um, I need to figure out how to get from here to there. Um, my cat uh, <laughs> um, is sick and needs a vet or I need food for my cat or my daughter has a really painful earache and needs uh, some help. So just really immediate needs that um, Frankly, as a volunteer, I didn't feel very um, uh, knowledgeable, frankly, you know, in terms of my uh, understanding of uh, the services that were available and everything was changing so fast. You know, in one minute things were one way and the next minute things were a different <laughs> way. Uh, but there was a group of volunteers at the center from really all over. Um, and one of the things that I uh, really quickly realized is how uh, invaluable having some language was and being able to support people. So yeah, we'll share more I think later. Can you tell us more maybe about the, the, the needs? You said they changed from person to person and maybe from day to day and maybe how the situation has developed over time. I think Carrie would probably have a good sense of that as well. Yeah, this is great. So since I mostly worked with, I mean, there were volunteers that came and didn't have language and there were things to do. Uh, people were showing up from everywhere with all sorts of skills. Um, but the translation, uh, uh, having some language was really important, at least from the start. So like we said, we needed that phone bank because there just weren't interpreters. Mm -hmm. When we started to bring people over, then it's, you're working all day, every day. We had little vests, they have your language on them, and people would just stop you in the hall with questions. Uh, we noticed, so when we were interpreting for the international desks, they came over and they're, you know, people without language, but they have the connection to the buses and the, mm -hmm. and the housing. So you start, you know, sit down with the family and start talking about what do they offer in Spain, what kind of housing could I have, but you soon find, and I believe you guys both found that 
uh, you become that person's caseworker. They don't come back to the Spain desk and ask for a new translator and say, okay, I, want, I have more questions about Spain. They, come, they find you in the hallway, and so you become that person's trusted person. Um, and that way, too, you're not just their interpreter, you end up answering the questions about where the showers are, do they, which services they have available, other counselors. Mm -hmm. So that kind of question ends up making you their person. Mm -hmm. um, and then, you know, by the end, you know when they're gonna leave, you know how to direct them to their bus, and there are hugs, and you know, good luck mm -hmm. in the future. So for language people, I think we got so much more of a depth of experience, un understanding sort of what people were going through and the questions they ask. Um, and, and I think for, as a volunteer over time, that's, that brings you a lot of sort of uh, feeling, uh, good feelings of good work, um, as opposed to, you know, there is necessary tasks like washing blankets and, you know, doing that kind of assistance. Um, so I think that's that's a really important thing about the language. Do you, do you guys have any thoughts on that, that same thing, that kind of progression into um, being a caseworker? Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, we uh, sometimes were caseworkers, sometimes we were just, you know, answering quick, quick questions and addressing immediate needs, like Diana said. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, there were a number of situations where people stayed in the center for several days, sometimes several weeks. And we developed pretty close relationships with those people, and it was both very rewarding to know that we were able to help them, but also very difficult to to work with people who are going through a lot of trauma. And we, frankly, were not trained for that, mm -hmm. uh, so it was oftentimes very difficult to just kind of find the right way to talk to them, find the right way to address their needs, mm -hmm. find the right way. Uh, find help in Shamasin, the city which we didn't know very well, you know, the, the resources that we were not familiar with. So all of that presented a lot of challenges for everybody, but um, the families that and people that we uh, worked with were just incredibly strong. And I, I am still uh, just, you know, I first of all, I am myself originally from Ukraine, from Lviv and have uh, many family members and friends still in Ukraine and even in other areas, and I just feel uh, almost guilty, you know, that I'm not there with them, and and um, I definitely have um, this sense of whatever I'm doing is not enough and it's not adequate to really help the situation. But uh, it was um, really wonderful to be able to help in that small way that you know for you know getting people um, immediate help even if it was something very very small like making a vet appointment for their cat in China you know even that even that felt like uh, an important thing to do and really helped the people who were there who were facing enormous amount of stress and and difficulty uh, there's one other thing about that that she tied on to I wanted to mention um, when when you start doing those personal services for people, what I noticed is that a really good strength to have or skill to have is to sort of be able to be a little bit more stoic about in yourself and not, you have to empathize to a great degree, but not so much that it compounds their trauma. So it, you end up sucking up a lot of, the, of what you hear and sort of processing it later. Um, but I do, I've heard from many volunteers who are volunteers or people who run programs that the the biggest quality they want in somebody is empathy. Being able to understand that, you know, if someone's asking you, they only want to go somewhere if their son can get bassoon lessons. Mm -hmm. And we had a few volunteers who were like, that's stupid, you know, they're mm -hmm. fleeing from a war, why would they need? 
Well, she was literally willing to go back to a war zone because that was her son's career on the line. So this was the most important thing to her. So, you know, if you turn to her and said that's unimportant, you're telling her, you know, to go back to a war zone because she can't find help with you. So I think there's that level of empathy, um, but sort of at the same time, taking a little bit of a step back from it so that you can offer something and, and sort of so that they feel like this is a calm place that nobody here is overreacting or, or feeling too, too hard their trauma. Um, something else maybe uh, to share is that uh, in, in the center, the people who came through were among the most vulnerable already uh, um, in uh, Ukrainian society before the war, that more uh, people with more resources, uh, um, connections, people with uh, English um, and um, right, financial resources, at the beginning, I think you know, everyone was sort of in the same boat, but when Anna and I were there for the summer, uh, it was people who had nowhere else to go uh, and no other resources. And uh, so there was a, really a full spectrum of people with, uh, with really pressing needs, uh, uh, who would have had very pressing needs uh, at home in Ukraine, much less uh, uh, displaced uh, in Poland. And so that included, um, People with uh, pretty severe mental illnesses. Uh, there was a kind of medical area where uh, there was a woman who shared openly her, her um, uh, diagnosis with schizophrenia and it was by herself. Can you imagine? Um, all by herself. Uh, there were elderly people all by themselves. You know, it just, it just breaks your heart. All by themselves. There was a blind uh, person all by himself. Um, and uh, um, yeah, and so and, and so for that, having some language is mm. also then uh, a way for it's not just providing services; it's uh, um, the the human communication with another person who can hear you and understand you uh, and be responsive. Um, somewhat related to that, on a uh, kind of. Um, Unpleasant note, something I, I wasn't expecting either, but should have uh, been probably in retrospect, uh, is that all of the refugees were not ethnic Ukrainians, of course. They were um, everyone fleeing uh, the war. Um, and so in the center, we saw um, a fair amount of discrimination uh, against uh, Roma uh, families and uh, uh, they, there were rooms set up for different uh, people, groups of people, depending on where, which country they were going, planning to go to to stay. Um, some ethnic Ukrainians didn't want to stay in the same room with Roma uh, families. Uh, um, so mm. the things that are hard are, were harder. Um, mm -hmm. uh, and those who were marginalized, were, I think, are in the time of war are even more marginalized and more vulnerable. Uh, yeah. Might help to show pictures. Yeah, you want to do pictures? Uh, that was a bad transition. I was told like, <laughs> 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 uh, yeah. yeah, okay. Um, so I won't talk too much about the photos because I just wanted, but I wanted to give a context. So I'll tell yeah. you what they are, but like, um, you can ask questions uh, later if there's anything specific. 
Uh, so that's just the outside of the center. We had World Central Kitchen catering, which was fantastic because we ate for free all the time. As an aside, amazing. They're they awesome. were an amazing organization. Yeah. They were there from morning till night with fresh, mm. from scratch meals that were um, culturally appropriate, coffee, tea, all day long, bottled water, meals to go, just yeah. amazing. Yes. Yeah, the work they did. Yeah, for the yeah. Uh, So as, as I said, we came with a van. We stuck some stickers on it. That was the beginning of our <laughs> our uh, attempt. Uh, so this, for example, is one of one of my families that I we had them for about two months waiting for a UK visa. So wow. that's uh, you know getting ready to drive them finally somewhere. <laughs> this is the uh, international desk. So if you pictured something a little bit more formal, uh, here it is. <laughs> you stuck up your flag. Uh, at some point, we said you should put the name of your country, okay? Uh, but basically, it was just people set up shop and tried to um, help people as much as they could. Uh, so the next photo is a little uh, jarring. Uh, this is uh, room 13, 477 beds. Uh, you got a blanket and a pillow. Uh, and this was one of the larger rooms, but this was not the extent of the, this one refugee center, and they were all over Poland. Um, so this is, is what you would be sleeping on for the night with your baggage with you. Um, no place to store that or anything, but um, that's room 13, and within room 13, then, this is the lovely thing, they had a warehouse in the back. All of this is, you know, donated clothing, so you can basically shop sort of for whatever you want. Um, they had tons of toiletries and anything you need, so you just come up to the, to the um, volunteers and ask for whatever you need. As I said, we started just translating for families that literally came up and said, I have no, wh like, which flag do I get to? <laughs> what, what do you recommend? Which I thought they might already have an idea. Not a lot of people had any idea which country to go to. So using my limited <laughs> knowledge, we ended up having to sort of learn what each country provides um, so we could guide them depending on what they're looking for. Um, this is an example of just translating. So, you know, they come up and those were these lovely volunteers from the UK but didn't have language. So they always had to be pulling someone. Mm -hmm. So if you were actually there with language, you could do your whole, <laughs> you can sign people up in your buses, but they needed interpreters desperately when they got there, our vests. Uh, this is an example of a bus we brought. So we got this uh, sort of donated um, charity bus that was going back to the UK. They brought a bus full of aid, the entire thing, seats below unloaded it, we dropped it off, and then we took passengers and they drove them safely back to the UK. Uh, ad hoc meetings. Anytime you're in a place that's changing this rapidly, there is no conference room. This was our transportation desk meeting to try and organize how to, uh, the, the, um, what we need to have in place to um, crack down on uh, human trafficking. So that's us uh, <laughs> having ideas. This is an example of Anna's lovely uh, phone bank work in working in progress. Um, there weren't always interpreters, so if someone comes to the desk and you can't grab somebody, we have these phones set up, they can call in, and, and, and they have a lot of questions, because it's like, what's it like to live there? It's not just, when is the bus? So, um, Projects. If you go volunteer, you gotta just make up your own projects. This was, uh, one of our volunteers was like, this pet center is a mess, so we made it nicer. As, as nice as you could make it, little categories of pet things, but you just have to figure out your own plans. This was one of my whiteboards to show which beds are in which rooms and which are occupied. So that way the people who come in without language, we can come through, they're willing to tell you anything about these beds. No, that lady left, she was terrible. <laughs> or this, this woman, oh yeah, she had a cat. So we marked the beds and then the clean, cleaning crew could come in and put fresh bedding on so that you know people that weren't coming up to dirty beds 
Uh, another volunteer of ours put together a departure board so there could be a screen up for when the buses leave. Uh, a lot of people just wanted to leave anywhere and you know, they wanted to leave now. So what's the next bus? Where are the buses going? What options? Some of the countries, you know, maybe Finland might have one bus a week yeah. and they just weren't willing to wait. So we had a system we trained everybody on departure board. We got a volunteer house, just advertising. Hopefully if you um, find an organization, figure out if they provide housing. We had a lovely Borscht. <laughs> uh, thank, thank Anna for uh, our volunteer Borscht night. It was lovely. Um, okay, so I said we transitioned to aid. People just did drive up with three vans, and they're like, we gotta get back on the road. Where do we put the aid? So we said, our van, we'll take it where you need to go. The aid developed across the border. Um, yeah, so bringing stuff over to, and, and some of it was orders, some of it was just, we have this, who wants what? Uh, refugees coming back, so we would uh, sign up people for our vans, uh, depending where they are, Zaporizhia, we do Geneva, um, Kiev, Dnipro, um, so people would get on our vans and either stop in Lviv if they were staying internally or go over to Shemesh. Um, we didn't just take UK people, although that is our focus for visas. Uh, that's one of my favorite families. We're so glad to see them. So when they arrive, they're very relieved to um, be back somewhere. Um, this again, our whole operation went over to Ukraine. So the center in Shemesh closed down after a while. The government had, it costs a lot to run these things. The, um, I think it was around June and July that just the numbers started waning a bit. So we thought we're more needed. Uh, that's coming into Lviv. There are still, there are checkpoints uh, in and out of the city and along the roads. Uh, and those with some language. <laughs> so uh, I suppose I can't say the dirty word, but the Russian warship go, you know, yourself. Uh, we were surprised that these are, in, there's all sorts of like very, openly uh, strong signage. Uh, <laughs> so we set up our office, that's what we have running there. We do visa advice for general things. And then we also have just volunteers who come and work with us or bring us um, people that they met at a refugee center that they're servicing that want to go somewhere and want to know how to get a transport. Um, this is Mo filling out one of our family's visas. They're still waiting for their visa, but our fingers oh, are crossed. Oh. Uh, very sweet family going to Cambridge. Mm -hmm. And this last photo is just a reunion we had in Newcastle. So these are all the Ukrainian families from that one city that our organization brought over and their host families. So very happy to be there and we were happy to see them again. Lots of hugs. Uh, okay, that's all I have in photos. Uh, so I guess we can go on with questions and then also feel free to ask questions about that stuff at the end. Yeah, and we should mention that Carrie is very good about getting permission to show people's photos. Oh, yeah. So yeah. that's uh, you know sometimes difficult to do. So none of these people are being exploited. Uh, yeah, the, um, in the out, there was media all over the outside of the. Uh, so it was very obvious that when refugees went outside, that people were videoing and taking photos. Mm -hmm. There were no photos allowed inside unless you were a sort of managementy volunteer and no refugees were in the photo, or you had permission from the people you were taking the. So why don't we actually open it up for questions now, and if there's anything you want to yeah. add at the end, so uh, please uh, ask ask away. Lukash. Yeah, I have uh, two sort of immediate questions. So one thing I was curious about is um, we see a lot of uh, um, international organizations working uh, at the center, mm -hmm. and I'm sort of curious how how is the relationship between uh, local organizations work. So, so it's international, you know, the Wolf in the Kitchen, and mm -hmm. 
um, as uh, as opposed to the sort of the organizations that work within Poland, um, um, and how how is how are those um, um, interactions part of the um, part of the work of the center? And the other question is, uh, you mentioned that there are uh, families who were eager to get out and sort of whatever the direction. Um, but I've also read a lot of, a lot of situations that the, the, the problem was sort of reversed in a sense that people really wanted to stay close to the border mm -hmm. as close yeah. as possible. Yeah. Um, so I was wondering like how, how is that um, um, from your perspective, um, what did it look like and what, what happened in the, in the case of these? Yeah, I got a lot. Uh, I'll start with that first thing. So um, the organizations in Poland, we didn't work with a lot of NGOs or that smaller type organization within the center. Um, a lot of them, were, they already would have a place. So we had Polish volunteers, um, like scouts and other people just from the area who were volunteering on their own and just knew where to refer. So there was roommate was the room where we had an information desk. Um, we didn't translate for them because usually it was people, you know, Polish people with language. Um, but they would say, okay, if it's a disabled person, these are the three organizations doing that, here's the phone number. There were phone numbers all over the walls with different organizations. So in terms of Polish local things that were private, we referred people all the time and they were working, but they didn't need to be in the center for that. Um, the center was basically run by the city as management, but they didn't want to provide people to do anything at the center. So they wanted management control, sort of a decision-making um, oversight, but didn't do anything on the ground. So the structure, we just sort of promoted ourselves, you know, as, as long as you were there, then so, someone was like, oh, you do a lot of IT? All right, get in the management office, you're doing IT. Um, there was some conflict between uh, the organizations. We were threatened to be kicked out multiple times. Uh, we don't want the international desks here. And then at some point they said, okay, you're grandfathered in because you've been here and the refugees would know if suddenly they were, you know, we were pulled out, but no longer, we won't accept any further organizations, for example. So there was tension between the Polish government and us coming in as outsiders, I think. Um, the, the thing there is that there was too much work. They, they couldn't just say we can't have any international help or they would have been overwhelmed and they were overwhelmed. Um, so for that, yeah. There was also the Polish army uh, uh, yeah. <laughs> provided security and also uh, the US army uh, came in also to help clean. Um, um, but the Polish army provided security. Yeah. They took direction um, really well. And, uh, <laughs> uh, and, the, and the Polish Red Cross is actually running the center now. Mm -hmm. And so the Polish Red Cross has taken over the administration and there's quite a, um, it was yeah. quite of a, a kerfuffle, I guess, about that <laughs> yeah. uh, uh, among the international volunteers who wanted to continue to volunteer, and the Polish Red Cross really shut that down. Yeah. I mean, frankly, there was, um, uh, again, from an outsider perspective, the volunteers were anyone, too. Uh, and so they were, you know, mostly people of goodwill, uh, trying their best, but with a range of uh, types of expertise and, um, uh, and also who knows? Um, oh yeah, bad actors. But right. this crisis brings the good and the bad. So right. know, people coming in for the wrong reasons. But Carrie mentioned human trafficking, which was a big concern, is, is remains yeah. a big concern. Um, there was also one uh, individual who um, uh, was, I can't remember if he was a German citizen, but was pretending to be a doctor yeah. when yeah. he wasn't. Oh. Uh, wow. You know, so yeah. yeah. But I think that's pointed to some tension 
follow-up question. So what was the nature of these tensions? That is, why, um, sort of why the, why the sort of old Red Cross would sort of want to take things over or kind of push away the international executive? Um, just curious about what the politics of that I think there's a, there are a lot of angles, but uh, one thing would be if if an organization like UN or Red Cross steps into something, first of all, it's hard for them to even do anything because they have to get so, there's so much bureaucracy and so much permissions and meetings and meetings and meetings. And then, you know, to be able to take something over, they're responsible. When you're talking about 20 volunteers from random places showing up and doing the best they can, on the bad side, there's not a lot of oversight for what people are saying to people or you know how, how they're working, but at the same time, they can get in there and they're flexible and they can do whatever needs to be done. Polish Red Cross took six, five months to be able to do anything. Well, five months, that's pretty much the duration of the big flow of people. So there, there's a good and bad, but I think that's where the tension is. Of course, it was a little chaotic and they had people who weren't experts and the, the people like the, doc, the pretend doctor guy are gonna fall through the cracks. There's no one vetting these people. They come in and they say, I'm a paramedic and have paramedic stuff on, so you know, who am I? I don't have the expertise to vet a fellow volunteer. Um, but Red Cross didn't have the capability to do it for months and months and months. So you know, that's, we're stuck there. Um, oh, and then your other question was about um, people coming over and not wanting to go to Western Europe. Yes, a, so lots of people. The problem was, uh, in this ex specific case, is that Poland wasn't really giving out a lot of like the welfare type benefits that the rest of Western Europe was doing, or much of Western Europe was doing. So you could, you know, many people wanted to stay close in Poland, but that's on their own bill. They weren't gonna get assistance. Um, and the language is a little bit too, like there weren't a lot of people who could just make it in Polish <laughs> because they spoke Ukrainian. Um, so there was no difference between going for them to Germany or not. Um, also, um, when we arrived in Lviv, we, of course, we're only gonna go where we're needed and wanted. So we did go to a bunch of refugee centers in Lviv and just say, do you want us to give advice on visas? Here are the things we can do. And we found out, you know, they were lovely about it, but they're like, honestly, the people who come and want to stay in a refugee center in Lviv don't have any place to go, but don't wanna leave Ukraine. This is the furthest west place with a kind of a structure um, they had certificates where they could go and get it stamped that they are displaced internally, um, and so they're eligible for certain services in Ukraine where you know just people from Lviv would not be, um, and that that's what they needed. And I, I understand that because who want I, it, you know it's language too. It's who wants to go and try to struggle in another language if that wasn't your goal or you never wanted to do that before. So yeah, a huge population is is staying in Western. If I may add to that, even you know some of the people that I worked with in Poland, uh, when I asked them where would you would you have any idea where you would like to go next, they said I want to go back to Ukraine as soon as possible. And um, uh, there was a woman that I remember very clearly that uh, you know she was alone. Um, she spoke Russian. She was she was a Russian speaker, which actually is the case for most of the refugees from Eastern Ukraine. They were mostly Russian speakers, uh, and. The minute she walked into the center and I greeted her, I was the first volunteer there that she spoke with, her first question was, uh, here's the amount of money I have, is it enough to get back to Ukraine? Mm -hmm. So she, she wanted to go back to Ukraine immediately mm -hmm. uh, and really just was completely lost and didn't know what the next step would be mm -hmm. for her, uh, which was very difficult. She ended up going to, um, 
the UK. Mm. It wasn't Ireland. Ireland? The Ireland. Oh, no, I, no, 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 the trip to Ireland? Yeah, she went to Ireland. Oh, the one you got yelled at when you speak Russian? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I thought she was not Russian. Well, she went to Ireland, yeah. So mm. she, yeah, so that was another, a little bit of, it didn't happen very often, but this particular situation <coughs> did occur a few times. Uh, the refugees from Eastern Ukraine who were Russian speakers sometimes didn't receive, weren't received uh, in the most welcoming way uh, by other refugees who are Ukrainian speakers or by Ukrainian speaking volunteers and they were asked to speak Ukrainian which for many of them was challenging mm-hmm. uh, and so she was uh, in a situation like that but uh, you know we were able to, to find uh, somebody who could work with her better and you know we were able to help her out but unfortunately that's also another source of tensions that, that mm-hmm. did exist that was all you. She came in saying, uh, the woman on the bus told me I can't speak Russian, so they won't help me here. And we're like, uh, uh, okay. no, that's completely false. But she also said, you know, they won't, they won't take me in Europe because I speak Russian. But, you know, this, they won't take us. Um, so, yeah, just you needed to talk to her and just somehow just assure her. And, of course, you can't, tell, you can't force someone to do anything. And you can't convince them of anything or they will, you know, as soon as you convince someone, and then they start doing it, it gets scarier and scarier because they think back to the fact that this wasn't their choice uh-huh. and that someone pushed them to do this. Mm-hmm. So even like, oh, we've got a seat for you in the car, we're going here, and they're like, oh, really? And they're like, yeah, I get it. Like any of that is, they get in the car and then they just realize, I don't know what I got myself into. So that, that center was set up for a sort of a 48-hour resting point and decision point for international travel was the point of it. But you need time to put your bags down and have a tea and a hot meal and then walk over and browse the flags and, and talk to people as opposed to um, the center 30 minutes away, which was you get there and there's just, they're saying get on the next bus mm-hmm. and you know who knows mm-hmm. where they're going. It's, so yeah. One of the things that the pictures didn't uh, uh, convey necessarily is that there were kids running wild everywhere mm-hmm. too. Yeah, can't uh, picture so that. If you can imagine you know, just, just children um, um, <laughs> and, and women on their own with, with families, some of them very large, uh, carrying all their belongings too. Uh, uh, that was another thing. Um, the uh, most uh, valued piece of uh, aid that we could distribute um, were large uh, roller bags. As you can imagine, people left their homes with all of their belongings or whatever they were bringing with them in bags. Uh, and some of them getting then going on trains, going on planes, um, without a suitcase. Mm. Um, yeah. And also they yeah. needed the size of the suitcase almost always mattered because if they were yeah. flying somewhere, mm. they yeah. wanted a yeah. carry-on bag because yeah. they didn't have the money to pay for checked luggage. Yeah. And you found yeah. a source of those miraculously yeah. Yeah. somewhere in Shadowson. But there was always trades. Yeah. It's like I got a big one, I need yeah. two smalls. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Which was something that, oh, sorry. Yes, yeah, I think I'm just going to say what you were going to say that we didn't expect that. We, mm-hmm. we didn't anticipate that at all. We didn't know that that would be a very large need there. But it was. And some of the forms of some of the things that people donated, um, like teddy bears and toys, it was there were people who were um, uh, 
doing uh, essentially childcare. There was a whole circus area outside where there was uh, a group of German um, circus performers keeping the kids <laughs> occupied, which was just, it was a bit bizarre, frankly, but also, um, you know, with circus music and they had a big tent, but was also, can you imagine, you know, you're um, a, single, a, a parent by yourself, you've traveled, you're, you're so sleep deprived, you arrive at this place with all of those cots, you have to go figure out where you're going to go next, you've got all your belongings you have to keep with you, and you've got your, your kids, and so to be able to send the kids somewhere safe, where the kids could just run around and play was a godsend for those, um, for those mothers. Uh, but things, uh, types of aid uh, that didn't really seem to be necessary, at least in this context, were toys, um, which I think a lot of people think about donating you know, for children, like toys. But uh, just imagine, again, uh, you saw the people getting on, on the bus. It's you know, one person with their children and all their belongings. And the toy that the child might really want is the thing they brought from home. You know, not some like random teddy bear that they get from a stranger. Um, and same with candy. Um, yeah, Carrie keeps saying like, don't teach kids to take candy from strangers. You know, <laughs> their mother. Can you give out the candy to each right. individual kid? I'm like, okay, yeah. the mom is not going to be happy with that. Right, right, right. You know, you're like traveling. Do you really want your kid, you know, ingesting Often. lots of sugar uh, and then, uh, yeah. So, um, so the types of aid that were really useful were just the really practical things and. and I imagine right now it's all about preparing for winter, um, um, and so coats uh, and blankets and boots, boots, generators. Yeah. Uh, but also, like some of the stuff we all learned on the job, none of us yeah. had training at this. So when you go over, it just takes some rational thinking, yeah. some again empathy. Um, but like you know, don't bring a balloon to a place where people are coming from a place with gunshots, yeah. right? Like yeah. just stuff like that. We had to figure it out. And then put a sign up, right? So don't don't think that you have to know all this. Just um, know that one of the skills you need is to be sensitive to that kind of thing and able to just say like, oh yeah, or you know, men just casually wearing camel, no. you know, not really helpful. Uh, but mm -hmm. you wouldn't think of that until you see someone. You're like, oh, like, I see that this is maybe a problem. <laughs> Things like that. Uh, musical instruments, big thumbs down. <laughs> I'm a musician, but don't bring a musical instrument into a place where the cacophony of sound is so great that. You just, you don't have any peace. Mm -hmm. Diana, you had described the space to me. Could you all describe the space? It, it was really yeah. mind-blowing for me to hear about the space where you all were. It's an old Tesco uh, grocery store. Oh. Uh, the, basically, the layout quickly is just a big square. It's just got basically what were small stores, and 113 would be a large grocery area. Uh, the cool thing about the center is you have to, they, you have to grow and become a mini city that has everything. They don't want to leave and cross the street and try to go out and pull and find something. So there was a hospital, there was a clinic, so the hospital had four beds and, and doctor doctors. There was a volunteer <laughs> clinic um, from, <laughs> I mean, just like not the clinic people. The clinic people were a you know, volunteer organization from the US that came over and they just had, you know, they could prescribe drugs and things and that was where you went for small things. There were two child care center areas that you know had sort of security people watching with the kids. They put tape on their back with their room number on it if they got lost because they don't speak the same language. Uh, there was a specific mother and child room uh, that also had a person at the door so men weren't allowed in. Um, and then each room uh, had flags up so if you went and signed up and you had a bus in two days to the Netherlands, they would say go find a 
bed 2B, we'll show you where it is, in the Netherlands room. So then there were mostly rooms, um, information room, and then as soon as the large organizations started to show up and have booths, we stuck them in the hallway. <laughs> so booths were all over, the, the walls were littered with everybody's you know, literature and you know, advice and, signs and things like that. And because the center wasn't built to be a refugee center, there were no showers or bathrooms oh. inside apart from just a couple of bathrooms. And you can imagine with just the influx and outflux of people every day, there were, um, it just got really nasty really fast. There were um, porta potties outside and some temporary shower areas. Um, yeah, they had a contractor, so they ended up having quite a few showers after they figured that out. But at the beginning, you know, people would be washing their hair in the sink or trying to make do with the small bathrooms. Mm -hmm. um, and then, of course, I missed it World Central Kitchen. So there was like, yeah. uh, one of our volunteers always said, the, the restaurant. We'd go over yeah. to the restaurant. Mm -hmm. So that was nice. But yeah. And the circus tent. Because <laughs> they always moved. And the circus tent workers were always looking for volunteers to help them move the circus tent. <laughs> <laughs> Other questions for our speakers? Did everybody have a cell phone? And did the big organizations have uh, an app that was appropriate to a refugee situation? Mm. Uh, didn't see any apps, no. Everybody had a cell phone for the most part. I would say 90-some large percent of people had cell phones. Um, all Androids, fun fact. Um, and they were the um, young people, uh, as you would expect, young people very prolific on the cell phone, had all the messaging apps, were easy to communicate with. Most, um, uh, there were some people who were not adept at cell phones, so they had them, but you had to like show them how to enter and how they would get a message and how to get a bus or whatever on the app. Translate. A lot of people did, yeah. And there's other apps that um, you can pay for that are a little bit smoother, the talk ones, so that it would actually be a voice. Uh, but again, you're sitting there waiting for the thing. I found most people didn't use them, although they had them. And at the train station, there uh, were free SIM cards. Uh, for oh yeah, the center too. They, uh, uh, and and yeah. at the center, mm -hmm. so that uh, people could switch out their SIM cards for a free um, account. I'm not sure how. Yeah. Um, I think it was free for free calls for when they were anywhere in Poland, so they could use that throughout their time in Poland. And then the center had Wi-Fi, so that was great. Were you able to be in touch with anyone who left? Do you know? Oh yeah. How people, what their experience was? Did some people go back? Yeah. So. Um, I'm in touch with every family, so I was there. The UK people uh, needed visas. Everybody else could just move on their way and get there. So there are a few people I know, you know, in Ireland or whatever that I keep in touch with. But the, the UK people at the beginning were there almost two months waiting for visas. Mm -hmm. So they had their family waiting for them, and they had the visa processing. But they were there for months. So those families, I was in contact with them every day and developed strong connections to. Um, I. Yeah, I made someone a re resume a couple days ago looking at, she was looking for jobs and where she is in the UK. Um, for the most part, everybody that we worked with, to, to wait that long and to have a family and to know where you're going, they're all staying and happy and wanna be there. Um, the difference with the EU thing is if you just jet somewhere, a lot of them didn't end up having a family that they went to, so that's one thing. They're in some communal thing somewhere, which isn't great. Um, more on their own in terms of support system. 
so there was a huge influx coming back, and then we placed people in the UK who said, we tried X country and we didn't like it. Mm -hmm. And we came back to Shemesh, to the border, mm -hmm. and then asked to go somewhere else. Mm -hmm. um, so there are definitely people who weren't happy where they went, but it's so case by case that it's not like you could say like, oh, this country didn't do a good job or this. It just is a real luck of the draw where you lie. I will say, and I'm not advertising the UK thing, even though that's what we do. Um, there is something to be said for knowing, seeing the family, talking to them on Zoom, even with, a, with an interpreter, and knowing that you're gonna be at this house and this is your room. Um, I think it got them mentally more prepared before they left to be like, I'm going on a long journey to this thing, mm -hmm. as opposed to the unknown of I'm taking a bus and then we'll see what happens when I get there. Mm -hmm. um, so, so for refugee services generally in the future, I think mm -hmm. it must be so, you know, having a system set up that's ready to go, large organizations, mm -hmm. that then, you know, when the influx happens, there is a process for it. I also want to add that the MAT Foundation has a system for matching refugees with families, and that's really important because you really help find uh, good situations for them, and uh, which, which increase the likelihood of them succeeding in that new place, doing well in that new place. Right, uh, mm -hmm. people just went on Facebook, and I found this terrifying. Um, especially when you look for the sponsor for UK ahead of time that they have to fill out the visa with you, so you're really looking for someone you're trusting like with your documents and things. But even other places, people would just put, it's like a dating site, they would put a picture of like a woman and two children on Facebook and say, who has a room for me? And then you just get single men being like, I'll take, I'll take two women and a woman and two children. And you, maybe that person's a lovely person with an extra house or something, who knows? But for us at least, they go through a certain amount of vetting and matching to say they need to have the same, somewhat of the same kind of understanding of what their household's going to be like, or you know, are they near a school? Because we're worried that you know we need an elementary school and a middle school, things like that. So making some sort of a match where everybody sees what they're getting into and what they, what this family will need from them, how much support, things like that. And I also wanted to add that for, for people who were waiting for visas in Shamusville, if they have families, you got them out of the center and you found housing for them in the area, which was also quite challenging. And sometimes it was in very remote areas and in small villages. Um, we had a rental car, so we delivered supplies to some of these families, which was really wonderful. Uh, but maybe you can talk more about you know finding housing for families who have to be there for a long time. Yeah, so that was a challenge because uh, I mean, you can say, well, they have a free space in the refugee center to wait, but nobody wants to be there. It's a, it's a rare person who wants to be there uh, for a couple of months. So yeah, finding housing was difficult, and then they're even more dependent on you. So what you're doing is taking them away from the hospital, the clinic, the, mm -hmm. the pet space, the World Central Kitchen, and they rest pretty much only on you then. So you know, making sure they have food all the time, making sure their needs are met. If there's any emergencies, obviously, you gotta have a vehicle and get out there and help. Uh, so those kinds of things, it, it shifts a lot of the burden to you um, or your organization that you're working with to be caseworking in that manner. Mm -hmm. Whereas at the center, they can just reach out for a translator, figure out who's, you know, where to go for something, um, as opposed to resting on, a, on one, one person. Mm -hmm. yeah. And I was going to say the World Food Kitchen, um, that's what it's called. World Central Kitchen. Yeah. yeah, there was, um, at the film festival in, in Madison, there was a documentary so it was really interesting, and then they gave some statistics afterwards, and they talked about them being in Ukraine. But it's just like one guy said, 
people are hungry. I can cook. Well, and they have lo lots of local volunteers then as well uh, who are uh, doing the cooking and serving. Um, yeah, they, they, they work like a business. Or, I mean, they're, yeah, yeah, it they're was fantastic. Yeah, the, they, they would hire local people as managers who were actually doing the stuff that you needed to be in Poland doing. And then they would have a lot of volunteers serving and talking to people. And they said, every volunteer I talked to from World Central Kitchen is like, we're speaking in a different language. I speak English, they speak Polish. We know what we're talking about. It's like, go refill the beans. And like, how hard is it to figure out, like, go get beans? <laughs> so they, they all had a great experience there, too. Oh, uh, two things. One is that um, uh, I, some time back, I watched, I think, on the Mad Foundation uh, mm -hmm. thing on YouTube, this discussion that had, you know, people from Ukraine, people from the UK, it, that gave a very good um, picture of kind of the whole process of somebody basically from extraction of refugees all the way to settlement in Ukraine that, you know, it can be watched if anyone wants to. And the other thing is, I happen to know that there's like about a seven minute video oh, that was particularly, um, you know. my mother, everyone. <laughs> and so I'm just, I'm yes. just advocating that we see it. <laughs> uh, yeah, I have a, there's a video that's focused on drives uh, that we just put together for fundraising, so I didn't want to show it here because it's a little bit promotional, but mm -hmm. if you want to come up after, I'll just give you the YouTube to get to it, but it mm -hmm. um, just shows a lot of footage of us um, dropping off people and, um, and getting aid packages and stuff, but um, yeah, there's been, the, what she was talking about first is, yeah, we have a lot of then sponsors who have this experience now, it's been six months, mm -hmm. they've had a Ukrainian family living with them for six months, mm -hmm. so a lot of the advice is like, mm -hmm. we didn't realize how important communication was to like, you know, so a, fa a, a woman would come to, came downstairs the first day, saw the family in the living room, uh, saw the mom, the um, husband and wife like eating breakfast together, and immediately went upstairs thinking, oh, this is their special breakfast time, and they look like they're having a lovely time, and I'll just wait. And then, you know, weeks later, they say, would you ever want to come down and eat, do not eat breakfast? You sleep so late, is everything okay? And she's like, no, I was leaving you for your special time. And she's, they're like, no, we want you to come and join us for breakfast. It's our special time. Like, grab a muffin, <laughs> you're fine. But things like that, like the cultural differences became so um, sort of, could be barriers, but require communication, then become sort of your story of how um, you, you brought people in. And I know the, the US, visa program, we haven't even delved into it because the, the, it's so onerous for finding the sponsor, getting people, you know, you have to prove all this financial documentation and then the paperwork when they come to actually get the services that are supposed to be offered. Unfortunately, I think the U.S. Um, visa offer was a little bit of lip service saying we're going to take this many, mm -hmm. but they didn't really do anything to facilitate taking those refugees. So, in one of the, um, this was in one of the earlier months of the war, um, the more or less official statistics have indicated that roughly 90% of, uh, um, of, the, of the refugees um, are comprised of the three groups of women, elderly, and children um, in various combinations. Is, from your experience, is that, um, is it accurate um, in terms of that come to the center? Yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, uh, and over time it changed. So certainly like elderly couples at the beginning, but not a lot of men of that age group that could serve uh, or could be conscripted. 
And then after a while, um, we noticed at the center at least that people were sort of questioning when we started to get more able-bodied men or seemingly able-bodied men. And um, there was somebody who said something really nice uh, to remind us all. A lot of people weren't able, you had to have a government stamp saying you were not eligible to serve, like they wouldn't even take you, right? So you had to have already gone to a doctor or gone to the, the place where you get that special stamp, which is probably different than your doctor. And as things went on and they started conscripting more soldiers, then they would do, they would pay and do your medical examination uh, at that time. So as the months went on, people would get their exam, they would say, I'm sorry, you have XYZ, and so we can't take you, stamp, here's the paper that says we won't, that we aren't able to use you in military service, with that stamp, they could leave. So it, it, was, it was people who were eligible. There are plenty of categories of men, single men with children, mm -hmm. um, men with multiple children, or families with multiple children. So if you have a woman with three children, the husband is able to leave under that um, qualification. Uh, so we saw more and more men leaving for perfectly legitimate reasons. Uh, the other thing is, there is a just discretion at the border that was awful for us. So you'd show up with a van of people with all their paperwork, everything. Could be a grandmother and a grandchild mm -hmm. with papers saying that, you know, I'm the guardian to cross the border. But you'd get a border guard that decided that day that that category wasn't coming through. Mm -hmm. So you'd get people turned away and have to be prepared. What are we going to do? Okay, drive, you know. So we you usually would drop people at the border and have two vehicles ready to go both ways. Mm -hmm. Um, but generally, you just go the next day and try it again, and they go mm -hmm. through. So if you know that they have the right papers, um, you just have to try again. But that's one of those frustrating, you're never going to have it all solved. You're always going to come into some situation that's, that you need to find a solution for. And usually it's try another border guard. <laughs> or go one down and go 30 miles up and just try the next one. <laughs> Good. Other questions for our speakers? I maybe ask one final question, which would be, where are we now? What is the best way? And maybe Carrie would be positioned well to answer this. How can we, how can we help? Yeah, so uh, like I said, when, people, when it first started, there was just so much help needed. You could just go and show up there, and there were ample opportunities. At this point, it's a little bit more selective. You have to find somewhere to volunteer. So we take volunteers sometimes, although it's not as much since we're not doing direct services. Um, we have some walk-ins, but not that much. But we, we do take volunteers now. Organizations generally who are still there are some of the larger organizations, and they're way harder to get your foot in the door or volunteer with. So you want to look for smaller organizations that um, may have even started with the Ukraine crisis. Um, there's definitely, you can donate to tons of different places. World Center Kitchen being one, um, us being another, but uh, but also when you donate items, just be cognizant that they don't need everything. So mm -hmm. if you think of somebody who already lives there and is staying there, you know they don't need like a half-used body wash or something. Like they're people need things that they're looking ahead or that they wouldn't have needed before the crisis. Water filters, um, you know, generators, but that's an expensive one. Flashlights, you know, um, sturdy boots for soldiers. The conscripted military. Um, they make them, a lot of times in rural areas, buy their own outfit, so they don't outfit them, they just conscript them. So we try to bring over um, used military clothing items, things like that. Um, but yeah, now there's a lot of, uh, of driver stuff and warehousing, things like that, where people have got their warehouse space and they're doing things like that. So there are um, things to do. Um, Mad Foundation does have volunteers. Um, if you're an American driver, you need your international driver's license, so get that first if you ever want to volunteer as a driver. 
Uh, but yeah, I think at this point, it, you have to find some organization doing a thing and ask them what they need now. So what we needed before was not what we need now. Uh, we're looking at power outages, long power outages in winter. Um, so it'll be related to that pretty much. And what's the website of Mad Foundation? Sure. Madfoundation.com. Uh, actually, uh, we're, we're now operationsafedrop.com is our main landing page without having to click over, but operationsafedrop.com. And we're also on, sort of on Instagram, if uh, I can remember to do it, uh, at <laughs> operationsafedrop. Well, thank you very much for this fascinating presentation and for your work.